Well, today is going to be a little more teaching than preaching. And you'll see what I mean by that. I'm laying some groundwork for our next series. So where we left off was the Apostle Paul was in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And I want to show you what in the world happens in the second half of Acts in about 60 seconds. So if we go to the next slide here. Paul spends the second half of Acts traveling in the Mediterranean and he has a a priority in mind and we're going to look at that today to make that our priority as well. In the bottom corner here, to the bottom right, you have Jerusalem where this whole thing exploded and in Paul's first missionary journey, he goes up into Turkey, into Galatia there and then heads back. In his second missionary journey, he ends up doing a circle around those, uh, those highlighted cities. And then his third missionary journey, he does another circle around those cities, strengthening and continuing what he's doing in those churches. And then his fourth trip, he gets arrested. And from Acts chapter, I believe it's 21 through 28, It shows him in chains having a phenomenal ministry on the way to Rome to bring the gospel to the capital of the Roman Empire. And so a simple question today is, what was Paul doing? (laughs) He was going all over the place. And in our next slide, we'll look, if you open the table of contents in your Bible, these ones in yellow are what Paul ends up writing. There's 13 of them. And you could argue that he wrote Hebrews as well, but these other ones specify in the text that it was Paul himself writing. And he writes nine of these letters to those seven churches that we had highlighted on the screen before. And the last four of those letters are to church leaders. And again, as we look at his letters, what is he doing? And I thought through, man, I could maybe preach a couple of these chapter by chapter, but I'm realizing the repetition in these letters is quite significant. For example, there's what's called the household text, and we see that in four of the, the letters, and it's, it's the same flow. And beyond that, we even see it in other of the letters as well. And so going forward, we're going to topically be addressing how the church ought to be living in this messed up world, in some really practical ways. And today's setting the foundation for that. And so, we're going to start off here in the next slide, in Acts. I want to show you a quick little theme happening in Acts for the church. And so, in chapter 9, we see that this is Paul, and I want to show you in Acts, we're going to look at four books of the Bible here, But this first book in Acts, I want to show you how the church is a way of life, okay? Now, it is true, you could say the church is a place where we gather, okay? The definition of church would be an assembly together. It's also true to say that the church is the people, okay? But you're going to see today that the church is a way of life, and it extends through every minute and every hour. My goal for you is that you'll see that some of the simple things in your life are quite sacred, are quite significant. 
So here Paul mentions he starts off not traveling the world strengthening churches, but traveling the world destroying churches. That was his start. And he says that his goal was to arrest any followers of, what does it call it there? The way with a capital. What does that mean? They didn't know what to call it yet. (laughs) They didn't call it the church yet. They didn't have denominations set up. (laughs) But the world looking in could see this is something different. And so they just called it the way. On our next slide, you see it some more. The gospel continues to spread. People, the culture, has having to deal with their response to this. In this case, over in Ephesus, it says some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. They saw that it was countercultural. See, Paul wasn't just going around just telling the culture to keep doing what they're doing. He's going around and saying, hey, homosexuality is wrong, you Greeks. <laughs> it's not what God intended, the way to live. He takes a stand. It caused some serious trouble at times. Verse 23 here says that some serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way, the way of life. If only more Christians lived out the way. Next slide, please. At the end of Acts, Paul gets put on trial. He goes, I admit that I do follow the way. (laughs) They're accusing him of that. Would anyone accuse you of that? If they looked at the evidence of your life, they looked at your bank statements in your calendar, your computer, how you handle things at the dinner table, Would you be found guilty of being a follower of the way? Now, I think most Christians don't even know what the way is. (laughs) We're bombarded with messages from the culture saying, hey, go this way. And we go, man, as a Christian, how am I supposed to react to that? When I have a family member telling me to call them by a different pronoun, how do I, what is my response? What is the way? To respond to that. The person he's standing trial in front of, Felix, says he was quite familiar with the way. Not just the talk, (laughs) but the walk. So he adjourned the trial, he had to think about this. Because talk is cheap. But when you see the embodiment, the incarnational word of God lived out through a life, when the message is the man, such as through Jesus Christ, the world has to pause and think about what to make of that. The next place I'm going to bring us is Ephesians. So they, even in Acts, we saw them wrestling with what is this way that they're living And Ephesians 2 through 3 does a great job describing some of this. And in our first passage, we'll start seeing that the church is not just a way of life. It's called a household. 
There's an order to it. There's a way of life. And if you think about your household, who is in, what is your household? It's not just who you gave birth to. It's who's living in your house and how you're living in the house, right? It includes having lunch, having dinner together. It includes having a job to pay for that dinner. It includes raising kids, people being in different stages of the journey in their home. You see, the term household is a social function. It's the way that they're living. It's not the object in which they're living in. It's not the form it takes, but it's the function. It's not the method, necessarily. And so here, the end of chapter 2, and we'll roll into 3, it says... Again, Paul's traveling the world, giving this message. He says, you are now citizens along with all of God's holy people and you're members of God's family. The word for family can also be interpreted as household. There's a way this thing's supposed to look. And then into chapter 3. All right, I got that wrong. Chapter 3, though. Verse 8 through 9, it says, Paul's given his priority, and that is, he is to go tell the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them to Christ. So we're preaching Christ, okay? And then secondly, it's to explain to everyone this mysterious plan. That word for plan is, can be translated as an administration, a household order, okay? There's a way this is supposed to look. That God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Verse 10, I love this verse. This verse gripped my heart when I was 18. I wrestled it for a while about where I was going to invest and spend my life. When I realized what God was up to, I said I wanted to join him. And it's the second part of what Paul was doing. He went around preaching Christ, but that wasn't it. There's a reason he did a second and a third trip. There's a reason he wrote these letters that we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. And it's because not only is he preaching Christ, but he's teaching how to live church. And God's purpose in all this was to use the church and how it lives to display his wisdom in its rich variety to to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God wants to change your life so that the world and the devil have irrefutable proof God's ways are best. God's ways are wise. Let's continue on. I'll show you some more text here in 1 Timothy 3. Timothy is one of the leaders that Paul left in Ephesus, traveled with him through Philippi, through Thessalonia. At one point, he had left Timothy in Ephesus, and he says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, so he's talking about his travel plans, why is he going all over the place, doing what he's doing? 
he says, so that you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. That's why he's writing that letter. So when we look at, in the weeks to come, what's in these letters, it's always under this heading of what God wants to do through his church and how the church is to behave. And there's a way to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And when I was 18, I realized I have no clue what that means. I don't know what that looks like. I I used to think we'd work jobs because, well, we got to eat. Well, God made a reason. He could have made it so we didn't have to eat. (laughs) He gave us this whole way of life to live, to raise families. And I have not yet seen anything more beautiful than when the church does those simple, sacred things significantly and how God uses that. 1 Timothy continues. This is another great text. Can you go back one quick, just so I can get my flow? (laughs) So this household of God, it continues in the next verse, thanks, by saying that this household of God is a pillar and support of the truth. So if you move forward one for me. It says that this is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So as the church lives out how it should live, it shows the watching world, gives evidence to a watching world that there is truth. And what's happened is that a lot of churches don't live out how the church is to be lived as a way of life. Instead of being a pillar and a foundation and an anchor of the truth, it just is crumbling. I think here in the Midwest, we look around at the larger metropolis cities around in Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. (laughs) Where's the Midwest values? Where's the anchor? (laughs) You know, in some ways, moving here, I'm realizing if Hampton's not the anchor, where is it (laughs) in the Midwest? I think we feel that burden and responsibility. It says that the church is to be the anchor of truth. Our world scoffs at truth. Our world speaks as Pontius Pilate did to Jesus, saying, what is truth? They reject it to the point that nothing is true. Some of you have, we have some concrete workers in here. We're real good at laying a firm foundation. And then people often build on that foundation, do they not? But imagine a conversation where someone tells that concrete worker, you know what? We've decided not to lay a foundation for our building. We're just going to put it right on the ground where it lay. We're going to save some money doing that. (laughs) Are you now? Okay. Well, a lot of churches don't have a foundation. Sure, they got a sign out by a highway. That doesn't mean squat in the eyes of the Lord. They don't have a foundation, or if they do, it has slowly decayed and crumbled. Which breaks the heart of God. Which breaks our hearts. They're not living it out. They've built on sand. When you build on sand, the time will come where it will fall with a great crash. Again, that's what gripped me when I was 18. I don't want to build on sand. 
I don't want to look back 50 years from now with regret seeing what I've invested in and worked towards fall with the great crash. I don't think you do either. Rather, we want to build our lives on the truth that it might stand as a pillar and a support. Next slide, please. The end of this letter to Timothy, Paul tells him, teach these things. So it's not just preach Jesus, but part of that is then teach them how to live. Teach them how faith in Jesus applies to your life in the sticky situations. It says, teach these things, Timothy. Encourage everyone to obey them. For some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and these teachings promote a godly life. There's such a thing as false teaching, and it's scary, really scary. I was watching a TV show this week, and it was just scary the way they presented Christianity. Someone on the TV show was a so-called pastor, and he was telling two people that one believed in God's love and the other one believed in just doing nice things to others. And he goes, that's... It's the same thing, right? This pastor's saying. And the person who just believes a nice thing started to cry, thinking that this Christian might believe she would go to hell. And the pastor goes, no, don't anyone let you feel like that. And I just was watching this, just thinking, my goodness, have things crumbled. But it works. You think about the people in your life that are mature Christians that have really lived it out. It works. It's attractive. It's beautiful. Yet the world calls it so oppressive. It calls good evil and evil good. We'll be looking in the coming weeks. How do we interact with that? Good teaching promotes Good living. If your Bible, if this church, if it doesn't lead you into a, a way of life that's a little different, something's wrong. If our lives aren't changing, then we got to wonder what is it that we're actually believing? What is it that we're actually being taught? We'll pick that up here as we go over to Titus. This will be the last book we'll be in this morning. But at the start of Titus, we read this. This letter's from Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. And he lists two, two, two of his priorities. Because one, I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. He's proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. And two, to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. You see those two priorities in there? Proclaiming Christ, teaching how to live as a church. Teach them to believe the gospel and then to live out the gospel. To love God, to love others. Continuing on. It says in verse 5, he goes, This is why I left you, Titus, in the church in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order. It's not, hey, do ch- make church whatever you want to do. Okay. Local churches aren't just man's attempt to do what God wants. Local churches are God's chosen vehicle. Now, it's true, it can be flexible in its form, but its function is concrete. And the way we live that out, there is a path of truth that we will not waver on. Now, there's grace for the pace. Everyone starts somewhere, and everyone has a next step to take, no matter how far along that journey you're on. And there's grace for that, but it does not compromise the truth of that path. You want to tell me that the scripture says something it doesn't? I'm locked in. Jesus was truth and grace. He always seemed to know what was the next step in a person's heart that they needed to take. And that first step is faith in him. The woman, he met a woman at the well who had had five husbands. And he knew that the first step for her was, you're dead. Do you realize that there's living water that can make you alive? That was the first step. He didn't go right into blaming and judging her for her fifth failed marriage. He wasn't trying to make a dead person better. He knew the next step. But in that, he, he didn't say that that was fine. See, the path of truth is set. We don't waver on that, but there's a pace of grace that's needed. I need that. We all need that for our next step as we grow with God. Continuing on in Titus here. Look at this one. Titus 1.16. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. I'm going to do a Star Wars and a football analogy here. I'm sorry to you ladies for both. (laughs) All right, so Star Wars, they come out with a show called The Mandalorian. And there's a phrase in there where this guy with a real cool helmet, kind of set as a Western type, he has this phrase where he goes, this is the way. (laughs) And those that also wear his cool helmet, they're part of this, I'm not going to get into it. But they got this code of honor called, and they say, this is the way. One of the episodes, someone has the helmet on, but he's not actually a Mandalorian. <laughs> and he finds out that he's not really of that same code. He had stolen it. And they found it out. It wasn't the helmet that made this guy who he was. It was the way he lived. Okay? Same thing for football. You want to put on a 49ers helmet this evening and show up at the game and get onto the field, I can still tell you you're not a 49er. (laughs) How would I know that? The first play, you're going to get pancaked, right? It's not the helmet that makes you a football player. (laughs) It's if you've trained those muscles. It's if you can make the hit 
or take the hit. A lot of people claiming the cross of Christ, but they can't make the hit and they can't take the hit in their life. They deny what they're claiming by their life. You see, as a Protestant and as an evangelical church, we're very careful to balance out from a message that says that works save you. They don't. Faith in Jesus Christ and the blood of his forgiveness saves us. But, maybe a little more in the middle, we need to realize that the way you live indicates what you really believe. And if you're acting dead, maybe you're dead. If you're acting like Jesus is in the ground, maybe you don't really believe he raised from the dead. There's a scripture we looked at earlier saying this is the church of the living God. But if you're acting like he's a dead God, maybe you're not really living out there. Maybe you don't really believe. And you're not part of the church. First John does a great job talking about test yourself. Examine yourself. Because there's going to be people showing up at judgment day claiming they know God. And they don't. The next scripture here, Titus 2. I'm going to read you this whole chapter to wrap up. It's going to be great. He says, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So just as the moon reflects the sun as a mirror or water reflects something on the other side, there's a relationship here between good teaching and good living. How you live reflects what you believe in its truest form. Verse 2. So I'm going to give you an example of some the type of text we're going to be going in the weeks to come. We're going to look at it topically, but I just want to show you one string of it together, okay? So here he addresses different, I'd say simple things that are quite significant. He starts with the older men and it says, teach them to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, to live wisely. You must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Verse 3, he moves to the older women. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Verse 4, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. Why are they supposed to live out this way? (laughs) Because then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Verse 6, in the same way, encourage young men to live wisely. And you yourself, Timothy was a young man, you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching cannot be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. See, the world's got a lot bad stuff to say about the church, and some of it's valid because we have built with no foundation. Verse 9. Talks about work here. Slaves must always obey their masters, do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God or Savior attractive in every way. The theme you're going to see over the next weeks 
We're going to talk about marriage and gender, sexuality. That's usually addressed first. Then it talks about children and parenting, intentionally raising up a family and the next generation. Then it talks about our work. Not materialism, not laziness, but a God-honoring view of work and giving and generosity, meeting your own needs and the needs of others. These are simple things that the world has no idea how to do. And if the church does them, it makes the Word of God attractive in every way. I want you to claim to be a follower of Christ and then go make the tackle. Go score the touchdown. You ever notice how the talking sports heads, once someone wins a championship, quiet down? <laughs> Proof is in the pudding. Live the life that God has called you to, that he has died for you. And this is a place where we're going to grow in that. We're going to spur one another on in that because we can't do that in isolation. Verse 11 continues, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. For we should live in, in this world, okay? There's four ways Christians over history have engaged this world. They've attacked it, like in the Crusades. <laughs> They've run away from it, like in the monasteries. We're going to have our own little holy huddle, our little Noah's Ark, keep the bad people out. They've totally assimilated to it and just given in. Fourth option is to be in the world but not of it. To transform culture. That is what we're called to do. To engage. And we'll be looking in the next weeks, how do we engage this stuff? Because it's crazy out there. Sure. We should live in this world with wisdom. Okay? How do we live, how do we interact wisely with those around us, with wisdom, with righteousness, right? How do we not just give in? And devotion to God. How do we have the right priorities? We do this while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Verse 14. For he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. He tells this young pastor, you must teach these things. Not just teach, but encourage. Church, you can do this. Encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. There are no attenders in this church. There are only members. And I'm not talking about a vote at a business meeting. Are you in this or not? And as leadership, I'm accountable.
for the path and the pace of our church. That right mixture of truth and the grace so that we can grow into what God wants us to be. So that we can live lives of peace. It's a good way to live. Rather than lives of destruction. Rather than giving in to the sin and world and the devil that just wants to kill and to steal and to destroy. So that's the journey we're going to be on going forward. It's going to be simple, practical, and sacred. But man, the Bible has a whole lot to say about it. And there's going to be times that as you reflect on the ways of living, depending what you see, you're going to have to follow this link back to the gospel. To find that forgiveness in Jesus once again. And to let his love spur you on to continue and grow. So as you're watching the football game today, think about the way of life of this church. The way we live as a household together as a family. And how God wants to use that in the world. There'll be some good scriptures ahead. I guarantee it. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your church which you bought and purchased with your blood. I thank you for your grace that covers us each and every day. Lord, that every sin is nailed to that cross. And I pray, Lord, I think of the scripture that says, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and self-discipline. And I pray for the power and the love and self-discipline, Lord, to grow. That we would know how to interact with our world, to do the simple things in our lives. To know the significance of that and what you're wanting to do. Lord, use faith family as a beacon and witness of light and hope. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.